Well, hello, welcome to Theologizing Life, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Uh, and uh, normally, this is the point where I say, uh, you know, uh, with Anthony Cottrell and the one and only Matt Tracy. But Matt, sadly, isn't going to be able to join us today. His daughter has um, probably a cold, some sinus and coughing, and uh, she's not allowed to go to the daycare. And uh, he didn't think, I, I mean, I guess we could have had his daughter join us um, and host, but uh, it, it probably would have been a little distracting. So you just have, uh, you just have Anthony today. Uh, but joining me today is Zach Samara. Is that how, uh, is that how you say it? However you want to say it works. Yeah. Zamara. How, yeah. How do you and your wife say it? We, we act like there's no S we say Zamara, but it's Polish. It was changed at Ellis Island. Actually, if it was really pronounced with Polish, it'd be more of a just sounds would be Jamara, but we never do that. We just make it Z-A-M-A-R-A, Zamara and act Zamara. like it's, it's somewhat normal, but there's that S there that throws it off. So Zamara. Well, uh, <laughs> so my name's Cottrell, but there's some people that say Cottrell, um, yeah. there's some, even in my family that say Cottrell, um, but my wife and I say Cottrell. So, uh, <laughs> so I, that's why I ask, how do you and your wife, uh, yeah. so I'm here with Zach Zamara, uh, and Zach is the executive director of immigrant connection, uh, and their mission, uh, they say at the heart of who we are, our mission, vision, and values reflect our desire to extend welcome and love to our immigrant neighbors. So we're going to talk a little bit today about uh, immigration. But first, um, I always like to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about who they are. Uh, so Zach, could you tell us a little bit about your story, um, your background, and, and particularly maybe how did that uh, how did that lead you to being the executive director of Immigrant Connection? Yeah, so uh, ever since I was a, a little kid, I, I was raised in a, in a family that attended church all the time and stuff, but not like my parents were pastors or missionaries or anything, but ever since I was really small, like four or five years old, I always wanted to be a missionary. I'm not quite sure, you know, where that came from, uh, but like Jim Elliott and through Gates of Splendor, like that, that was my, like my hero. I read that book probably much sooner than a child should have read it about like missionaries <laughs> being martyred. Um, and so I, I got degrees in intercultural studies uh, biblical studies, philosophy. And then I went overseas and I was a missionary in Papua New Guinea and I taught uh, pastors and church planners. Then I came back and got my master's in intercultural studies, like anthropology and ethics at a Asbury Theological Seminary. And I led short-term trips uh, for a while with an organization. Then we went back overseas as long-term missionaries to Mozambique. Uh, that was really, really kind of a dark night of the soul. Some people listening to the podcast have probably gone through those in ministries before, you know, it was everything I wanted to do. Um, I was married to my wife, Lindy, uh, still am married to my wife, Lindy. Uh, and we had a one-year-old son, Isaac. My wife is a special education. Uh, now she's an administrator. She's over special education for our whole school corporation. Then she was just a special education teacher. So really had like a great purpose uh, and kind of own mission before we went overseas. But in Mozambique, as is the case, I think in a lot of mission fields, like there's a role for one, but not two. And so while I was out like showing the Jesus film and planning churches and training pastors, she was at home with a one-year-old, like slowly kind of losing uh, like her purpose. Mm -hmm. And um, we only, we, we were supposed to be there for a four-year term. We only made it through one year uh, kind of uh, depression, like off the charts, which again is 
something that probably you could do a whole podcast on about how oftentimes we don't talk about this in ministry, especially in missions that at least one of the the people in the couple has really, you know, a lot of difficulties with, with mental health and, and we kind of just sweep it under the rug, but we weren't okay with that. We wanted to come back and get health and healing. But when that happened um, in, in 2012, uh, I thought I was, I was done. Like I remember, uh, and this isn't a counseling session, but like, I remember telling Lindy, we were like in an argument and I looked at her and I said, like, I don't really care because no matter what, for the rest of our life, I always win because I have given up like all of my life's purpose. And like, as if I wasn't overseas, I just didn't see how. Um, simultaneously, one of my mentors in life, uh, who's a professor at Asbury Seminary, was like, Zach, I thought you were intelligent. I was like, oh, this is a great conversation to have. And <laughs> basically, he was sharing, he's like, look, you know, 281 million immigrants in the world today, like one in 30 people are migrating. Like, you know, there's currently 51 million immigrants in the United States, 15% of the population. Those are all time highs. He was basically saying, like, we live in unprecedented times. Like, you always felt off with missionaries because missionaries talk about being called to a place. He said, what if God just called you to people? And Mm -hmm. what if people are here? And like, you can have like a thriving marriage, a thriving family. You know, your wife can have a sense of purpose and calling. And so can you. Like, you're not giving anything up. Like, you know, the reality is, is like, you can be around cultures and people here. And so by God's just wonderful grace and providence, we were sent in 2012 to close a church. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we're part of the Western denomination. And so you can't really be sent really anywhere, but we were going to start a new church in a college town. I've been an adjunct professor for years. And so it seemed like a good fit. But before then, the district asked us if we would go to this uh, little community, Logansport, Indiana, less than 20,000 people. And it was a declining church. Um, little did I know when I, 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 I lied, I said, I'd pray about it. We were going to say no, but they called us on a Thursday and said, you're going to be here on Sunday. Right. And we're like, how'd you even get our number? And the, the district superintendent had given our number. So anyways, we said, we'll give you two weeks. Um, and on the second week, uh, a Latino family took us to eat. Uh, Logan sport has the largest percentage of immigrants out of every city in all of Indiana, except for West Lafayette, where Purdue University is, which has a lot of international students. So I always say they cheated, like we're really number one. But so lots yeah. and lots of immigrants live here. And so the second week, my last week in Logansport, we went out with this family and this family loved us. We were in a really tough spot, you know, coming back from the mission field, really broken. Everyone else treated us like projects. This family loved us and welcomed us and cared for us, even though we didn't know each other's languages. And we had lunch together and we kind of just figured out talking to one another. Um, and we decided that we had found home and because immigrants welcomed us, like we stayed. And so we can get into this probably with some other questions, but long story short, when you live in a community with lots of immigrants, you quickly learn that there's a principal need that immigrants have. Like um, most churches understand the needs of just most people, which is like, we need, they need housing and there's a need for food. There's a need for education, transportation, those things. But immigrants have this paramount need above those, which is access to legal services. And so when everyone was asking us, can you help us with this? Or like, we have questions about immigration. My assumption was in a community that had so many immigrants, we would just say, oh, go here. And then we found that like in most communities, there is no here to go. People would either drive all the way to Chicago, go down to Indianapolis, or they would use notarios who are illegally practicing law without a license. 
Anyways, here, here's the gist of it, and I'm landing the plane. Uh, the Department of Justice, all the way back in 1958, because immigration is complex and because they realized that most immigrants might not have the money for an attorney, in the law books, since 1958, they've allowed non-attorneys that if they got training and experience in immigration law, they would allow non-attorneys to practice immigration law if tied to a nonprofit. So there's been this program around all this time. Churches have seldom taken advantage of it. Other nonprofits have, even Christian nonprofits like World Relief or Lutheran Social Services or Catholic Charities, but churches themselves really hadn't. Well, in, in 2013, when we learned about it, it was like, well, churches are nonprofits. What if church people got training and experience and the church itself launched a legal office? So we started the very first Immigrant Connection site in, in February of 2014, right here in Logansport. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought I was going to serve, you know, a couple dozen of my friends, including that family that I first went to lunch with. Uh, we now are the largest and fastest growing network. I've served over 16,000 immigrant families. I mean, it's been a crazy whirlwind, but it all started because of kind of a, a failure and a loss in Mozambique and a reality check of understanding that the world is a changing place and that coming to a closing church, which by the way, I've been a, a pastor of for over 10 years now, and it's a thriving church primarily because uh, of how we serve and reach out to immigrants and we're a multi-ethnic multilingual church. So anyways, that's, that's me. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's interesting, by the way, at any time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so interesting. And there's so many, as you're sharing your story, there's so many questions I have. Um, I guess uh, one, that sense of feeling a, a call to, to missions and you obviously followed that all the way, you know, to, to t- studying um, intercultural studies. Uh, but were there times in your upbringing of, um, of I, I don't want to say rebellion or anything like that, but were there ups and downs in your upbringing? Or was this like, this was true north and you stayed the course all the way through? Oh, yeah. I remember... Um... I joke with people that, you know, back back in high school, I was really an, an intelligent person. Like, I think I've lost, you know, some of it, you get so focused in one aspect. But, you know, I I did really well on all of the tests and stuff. And so I had lots of people saying like, oh, you know, you, you, you'd be wasted if you just decided, you know, to go to a Christian school and be a missionary. Like, you should be doing, you know, X number of things. Like, you should be an engineer or a doctor. So, you know. And I was always like, nope, this is what I'm doing. Like, I didn't even want to be like a missionary doctor. For me, it was like, no, it's just, you know, serving the church overseas, you know, just ministry. And so I never kind of swayed on that. But I also would say that I never, I mean, I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. Um, I grew up saying all the things that I think most people say about immigrants. You know, if you go to any time, any place, any culture, immigrants are a threat and a burden. So we repeat mm-hmm. those kind of things, like they're coming to steal jobs or coming to have like free healthcare, like all this stuff that really isn't even true. I think we'll talk about later in the conversation. But I mean, it wasn't like I understood at all growing up that, you know, the world was at our doorstep. Now, the reality is, is, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. The all time low of immigration was the 70s and 80s. Like we have four times more uh, international migrants uh, in 2020 than we had in 1970. So some people listening to their podcast, like if you're, I'm 40 years old now, it's like, 
if you're in your 40s and 50s, especially if you're in your 60s, it's like this world didn't exist. And so I think a lot of us did have blinders to the reality um, that we simply can't have anymore. I often use Blockbuster as an example. You know, there's a generation of us that remember Blockbuster, but because they didn't realize changing times, like there's going to be countless generations that don't realize it. It's like the world is changing and ministry is changing in the context of the United States because of immigration. And if we keep acting like, you know, immigration isn't a major variable in our communities, like it's the church, you know, isn't going to be what it's called to be. Uh, you know, data shows that population is declining all around, but even in declining communities, the immigrant population is increasing. So it's not big cities, you know, it's, 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 it's urban, it's rural. It's, you know, I'm a little town that, you know, a third of our population is, is either an immigrant first generation or the child of an immigrant. So anyways, yeah, I wasn't aware growing up though, for sure. Yeah. So um, one of the things you also said that was interesting was um, when that, that Latino family that took you out, they didn't treat you like a project. Um, What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? What did it feel? How did people treat you like a project when you guys came back from what was probably in people's minds considered a failed mission? Um, yeah. What What was that like? And and we'll we'll talk more about immigration, but I feel like there's something really interesting there. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone that's gone through tough times, and 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 if there are a lot of people who genuinely loved and cared for us, so it wasn't like they didn't, but it was like. Can, can we pray over you or can, can we do something? And it was like, we no longer were people. I think in some people's eyes, like, like our, you know, like who, who we were didn't really exist anymore. We weren't just Zach and Lindy. We were these, these broken people and we were broken. Um, but we found healing when, you know, people uh, just like loved us and were present and we weren't defined Um, by that even though like you know I talk about that period like all the time in my church like that isn't what defines me Um, and so uh, yeah that that's what was so so different Um, Lindy my wife who went through like you know the hardest time it was it was her that I still remember like we left that restaurant we were supposed to leave town and never come back and we were in this little gravel parking lot beside the building and she said we're home it was like, it, and for, for us, a lot of the, the trauma, like, like we were diagnosed, it wasn't post-traumatic. We just had trauma after trauma after trauma um, was because of some intercultural study, intercultural dynamics, cross-cultural dynamics. Like it was a, a male dominated culture in Mozambique. So Lindy wasn't really treated like there as a person. So you would think that you wouldn't find healing through cross-cultural dynamics as well. Like if anything, I thought we would go back to like a homogeneous kind of like an all white type thing that like, you know, highly educated, like, you know, one of those that would make mm-hmm. us comfortable and right. Yeah. But instead it's like, we found, we found healing and wholeness and acceptance in the midst of radical diversity and people who were very different than us, uh, but loved us so well and so genuinely. And so, um, and, and anyone that's been through it probably, I mean, you've been like, you know, the people that it's like, you don't even know me. And yet, like, I sense that, like, I belong, I'm welcomed, like you care. And, um, 
And I think that's a profound thing. And I'm always wondering, I mean, a lot of people, when they say, oh my gosh, like it's so great that you found an immigrant connection. It was like, no, immigrants welcomed me. Like I'm returning the favor. Like I, I wish I could say that I led. It's like, no, I learned from mm. newcomers like who welcomed me, you know, how to then respond, you know, with welcome and love um, to, to newcomers. Wow, that's, uh, that's awesome. Well, one other thing before we move on to the next question, you, you had a term for illegally, uh, for individuals who illegally practice immigration law. And I think you oh, said yeah. it pretty fast. Was that a Spanish? Yeah, uh, so uh, a notario. So think of notary public in the United States. The Spanish equivalent is a notario. So the issue, though, is in Latin America, a notario has legal standing. They're kind of like an attorney. They've gone through legal training. So in Mexico, if you had a legal issue, you would go to a notario and they genuinely are legally able to help you. Well, what happened in the United States is we they use that phrase. You can easily get a notary public license. Like every county has hundreds of them, you know, who are able to do a notary uh, mm-hmm. stamp. Will you use that to like if you ever like anyone who's listening, like drive around certain strip malls and you'll see like international money orders, notario, like what you'll see that word now. And realize they're using that word to kind of trick people to say like, because when a, when a Latin immigrant sees it, it's like, oh, this person can help me. But the reality is they have no immigration law training. And so like, even if you Google like notario fraud, you'll see lots of posters and ways to help educate your community. Because there's two different types I always share with people. There are like, I was a notario, like probably shouldn't say that out loud, but like, you know, there are pastors who like aren't we're not supposed to fill out immigration forms that's providing legal services that's giving legal advice. Like, so like you could do that for yourself and for your family, but you shouldn't be helping others unless you get training. So there are good natured people who say, I never take money. I'm just trying to help. And I would say like, you know, you know, talk to us, like, let us help you get trained. So you're actually legally able to do that. But there's this whole other group that just kind of prey on the vulnerable. Everyone knows that like vulnerable people, marginalized people, you know, are always preyed on. So if you ask like immigrant friends and neighbors about like some of the notarios that they've dealt with, you'll hear stories of yeah, this person took $10,000 and didn't do wow. anything, or this person took five and they did the wrong thing. Or sometimes it's like this pe- person took my papers and they're holding them hostage. I don't even have my birth certificate because this person said they needed it and now they won't give it back. And so there's all these stories. And so one of the reasons we exist, um, we want more immigration attorneys. There's 11,000 immigration attorneys. Uh, There's 900 nonprofits like us that do this work. We want both of those to continue to grow because there just isn't enough capacity, which is why notarios exist, is because there's nowhere else to turn. So until we can give every immigrant family access to high quality, like real immigration legal services, we're always going to have this group that is not doing it like correctly and and, and is hurting more than helping. Um, Although, you know, side note is, if you ever go up against them in communities, like most people, it's like they've helped some people. So sometimes you'll get a lot of people to defend them. Like, how dare you? Like, they're trying to fill a need that no one else is. But it's like, we understand, but there's a proper way to fill that need. And and this is doing more harm than good. And even if they've helped some people, they probably messed up a lot more people than they've helped. And so, yeah, but the word is notario, kind of think notary public, but just kind of the Spanish word for it. Oh, really interesting. I had no... No idea about that. So we've yeah. kind of uh, we've kind of talked about it um, already, uh, but just to to I guess for clarity's sake, 
you started Immigrant Connection and they provide uh, legal services. Um, tell me a little bit, just uh, what, are, what are the, what does that look like? What, what are those services? Um, are you helping uh, immigrants come here legally? Are you helping people who have come here illegally uh, try to, you know, legalize their uh, being here? Like what, what are some of the things you do uh, for someone who probably doesn't know anything about the process? Yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, so the, the reality is, is immigration law is really complex. Uh, there's four main ways to come. Um, there's family-based, employment-based, humanitarian, which is like asylum and refugees, and then the diversity lottery. And we'll talk about those later, but primarily family-based petitions is what we do and humanitarian petitions. And so uh, we work with all kinds of people. The reality is in the immigration system, um, even if someone is undocumented or unauthorized, that would be like if you're listening to the podcast and like you use the term like illegal, realize, you know, like the, the legal terms are you're undocumented or unauthorized. And so if someone that that just means that someone doesn't have papers many times over 50% of the time they overstayed something that was lawfully like they, you know, they were mm-hmm. an international student and they stayed too long or something, but, but to help anyone like that. You almost always have to have someone with lawful status in the room. So family-based immigration is all about someone that's already a U.S. citizen or already a lawful permanent resident requesting one of their family members, a spouse, a child, if you're a U.S. citizen, even a sibling, to have family reunification or to help someone who might not have status in your family gain status. And so it's a two-step process. The first step kind of deals with you have the right relationship. And so you're filling out forms and having evidence to prove like this marriage exists, or this is really the mom of this child. And the second step has to do with, are you eligible? Are you, the, the legal term is admissible. And so sometimes because of things you've done, like if you just crossed, if you enter without inspection, um, you're not admissible. And so then it's like, is there a waiver available or is there nothing we can do? And so, you know, what we do in our offices is like immigrants come and they have questions and we, um, we like listen to their whole story. We ask questions and we see what pathways might be available to them um, to help immigration as well. You know, like other than a U.S. citizen, every other process like needs um, renewed. So lawful permanent residence as a status maintains once you're a lawful permanent resident, you are a lawful permanent resident forever. But much like a driver's license, you pass your driver's test, you don't have to take it again, but you always have to renew your card. So we'll have lawful permanent residents come in to have to renew, or you'll have things like temporary protected status or DACA, the dreamers, who are these temporary ones that every two years you have to come back in. And so many times we help people, we we talk about either uh, maintaining the stability of lawful status, we help reunite family members, and we help lawful permanent residents take that final step to become naturalized U.S. citizens. Um, And so those are kind of the main things that our offices do. But then, you know, anytime there's a change in the migration, like so there'll be thousands of Afghan refugees that will serve because what they did with those that were fleeing from uh, Afghanistan was, you know, they gave them what's called humanitarian parole, which means for the first two years you're here, you have work authorization and you're able to be here. 
but you have to do something in that first two years to get in another pathway because after two years it expires. And so there's like a pathway for special immigrant visa. If you help the U.S. government, you can get a green card with those forms. Or you have to file for asylum and, and go through that process. Or you have to do temporary protected status. But like there's always Ukraine's another one. It's like so in the midst of all the things we do just related to the fact that there are over 50 million immigrants in our country um, that all usually need some type of, of service. Um, we're also, you know, with these with new things that happen. I often tell people, it's like, if you're a trail guide and the goal was, you know, to get to the top of the mountain, um, we're not an advocacy group. We're not, we'd love to see more trails to get there, but all we do is we take the law, which is our kind of map, and we help people understand what trails are available to them. And some of them are hard and treacherous and long and costly, but if that's all that exists, we'll go with it. It's like, we, we can't make up our own trails. It's like the, the law says, here's what it is. And so basically we sit down with people and say like, okay, here's what's available. And the fact of the matter is um, because of how outdated our immigration pathways are, there are a lot of people who come in our offices and we simply say, there's nothing we can do. And so in those cases, we come, become bearers of truth and say, if you can go to the notario and the notario say, oh, give me 10 grand and I'll fix it. And we're like, don't do that. Don't put your family at jeopardy. Like, you know, like if something changes, come back and ask us and we'll tell you, oh, there is something new and, and like, let's help you with that. But, but in some cases, there's nothing we can do. And so in those cases, we just help, you know, the family understand that and prepare and know not to like waste their money or put themselves in any danger. So that, that's basically what um, our work is. And so lots of, you know, lots of answering questions, filling out forms, you know, writing, you know, legal cover letters and things like that to help immigrants navigate um, the, the process. So uh, I should know this, but could you explain, um, maybe I should know this, uh, <laughs> what exactly is a green card and a visa? Um, okay. What, what are those? Yeah, so, so the card that a lawful permanent resident has and so, like, let's just, we'll just kind of walk through this. If they're, um, you, data on number of immigrants is always hard. You know, census data, like uh, random people knocking on your door, like, you know, most vulnerable people don't answer to get counted in the census data. I always use the United Nations as a world migration report. And so their data is, is pretty strong. They use multiple sources. So their last report said that we have about 50 million uh, immigrants. In that data, just so you're aware, anyone that's listening, immigrant and foreign-born, those are, those are synonyms. In most data, like in your census, you would, you would look up your foreign-born population. They don't say immigrant, they say foreign-born. Those are the same things. An immigrant is someone who was born somewhere else, foreign-born, and lives here. Out of the 50 million immigrants... 24 million, so almost half, are already naturalized U.S. citizens. This is so important for your listeners. The reality is, is I think if, like I told everyone to close their eyes and imagine an immigrant, because of the narratives, like you imagine probably someone who's undocumented crossing the border. It's like, that's our narrative. And it's like, no, the actual, the average immigrant's already a naturalized U.S. citizen. Then there are about 14 million that are lawful permanent residents. And so uh, a lawful permanent resident has a green card. It's actually called a residency card. But since for years, it's always been green in color. 
we just like use the, we, we call it a green card, even though that's nothing official. It's like, so when we talk about, do you have a green card or do you have papers? That means you're a lawfully permanent resident. You're not a citizen yet, but lawful permanent residents, once they are, are lawful permanent residents for five years, three years of married to a U.S. citizen, pass the test, they can become citizens. Um, then in the midst of that, you have about three to four million temporary lawful people. And so that means they're lawfully here. Like think international students. They're lawfully able to be here, but it's not a permanent thing. It's just for this number of years or in that category would be dreamers. They're, they're lawfully here, but their, their papers only last two years and they have to renew them. So there are a lot of those that there are, you know, in that category. And a lot of times people don't realize in our work, people are like, well, how many people did show up and become citizens? As if you just move from showing up to becoming a citizen. By the way, that is what it used to be. Before 1965, it's like when you arrived five years later with no test, with no language to prove language competency, with no fee, you just showed up to any court and you said, I've lived in the United States for five years and they swore you in as a citizen. So like, that's what you're like, if you're listening and you're like, well, my grandparents came the right way. They like, that was the line. You came, you showed up, you were lawful. (laughs) Five years later, you said, I want to be a citizen and you became a citizen. So everything has changed, you know, radically. And then again, so as we're breaking this down, then there's probably around 11 million people who are are undocumented or unauthorized. Um, It's hard to get a number, you know, on that. That's kind of the number that most people share. Um, more than half of that 11 million were lawful at one time. So when you hear 11 million, I think, oh, all those people like snuck across the border. It's like, no, many of them came lawfully. And then for whatever reason, sometimes it was because lack of someone to help, they lost their status and now can't get it, can't get it back. And then, then you ask the question about a visa. So a visa is like what you need to enter lawfully in any category. So even if you're coming as a tourist, you get a visa to enter the country. If you're coming as an international student, you get a visa. They're different. So that would be a tourist is like a B1, B2. Uh, A student is an F1. Um, If you were coming as a family member, you know, it's an L. If you're like uh, an athlete, like Giannis, it would be an O. There's all different letters for the visa that lets you come in. And that letter in that category kind of tells you oh, this visa lets you get a green card or this visa lets you stay for six months and you have to leave. This visa means you can get work authorization. And so they're all kind of different depending on what category you're in. So, um, so if I wanted to come into the country, uh, there, I guess my understanding, at least of the Southern border is there's, there's certain checkpoints that if you go to, I guess, how do I get that visa if I want to, come in uh, so that it's not crossing the border illegally, as they say. Yeah. So there would be a whole process before you went to a port of entry. And so if you're living outside the country, you would get the visa at an embassy or uh, a consulate, an American embassy or consulate in whatever country you're in overseas. So in most cases, like there's all this paperwork filled out, like your family member would fill out all this paperwork in step one. That paperwork right now takes about 12 to 15 months to get approved. When it's approved, they would transfer it to the Department of State, 
right now there's a lot of consults that are still closed, but let's say we were in like a, a post COVID or a pre COVID world that like that wasn't happening. It would be about sometimes four months to get an appointment. You would go to the consulate. They would have an interview. They would verify everything. They would make sure you're admissible. And then they would take your passport. It'd be, you know, a foreign passport from your country of origin. And they put a visa in it. And then you'd have a, a set number of time that you could come either to a land border or fly into the country and in your passport, you would show them the visa. And so like, it's this whole process beforehand. There is no just showing up. I mean, for certain tourists, we have agreements with certain countries that you could just show up to get a tourist visa, but anything that you're planning on staying a long time, if you're outside the country, it's this process of you have to go through all the paperwork for your family member, or, you know, it could also be your employer who does all this paperwork to get you access to a visa then it's transferred. And the second step is you go through an interview process in your country of origin before you can come in. And here's the reality. They're capped. So 226,000 visas are for families every year. 140,000 are for employees and their families. And so that's why there's this long wait. Like ready for this. So if, if you're a U.S. citizen you can apply for your children, even if they're over 21. Uh, right now, you know, the wait for a child over 21 who's unmarried is seven years. Wow. But if you're some from certain countries, so India, China, the Philippines, and Mexico have their own lines because there's so many people from those countries. So if you're from the Philippines, it's 12 years. If you're from Mexico, it's 21 years. Wow. So like even to, so you can apply, they, they can say this is like the right relationship, you're eligible for a visa, but there's so many people who have applied for you beforehand that the line gets longer and longer and longer. The longest line right now is if you're the sibling of a, someone from Mexico, I think they're processing applications that were filed in 1998. Wow. So, so sometimes like, once again, it's like that, that, we talk often like the line is such a small, it's like two words, but the reality is, is like when you start like diving into this, you realize even when people have a way forward, you know, the reality is it's not as easy as I think, at least I'll just speak for myself. It's not as easy as I always thought. Like I thought for sure that people were kind of snubbing their nose at the order of the law and just doing what they wanted to. And then you realize that it's like, no, this is very, very complex, very, very costly, and very, very time-consuming. And even if people try to do it the right way, um, it isn't just, you know, a few weeks or a few months and everything's, you know, good to go. Um, yeah, that's uh, – <laughs> it's just so interesting. So if, if – like I've been out of the country a couple times and, you know, I have my passport – um, if someone were to travel here, let's say someone from Mexico comes here, has a, a passport and they come to, you know, for vacation, um, but then they don't hop on the plane to go back is like, is that one way people come here undocumented or is it uh, since their passport entering the country, it's like the government knows they're here and they'll, they'll realize like, okay, this two week vacation turned into a couple months vacation or like, um, I guess what I'm saying is what keeps people from doing that? Like, uh, 
So what keeps you from doing that, I mean, and they can, but is you can't just come from Mexico with your passport. You have to get a tourist visa before and you have to go through an interview process and it's hard. So I have a lot of friends um, who their parents can't come because um, when they go to the interview, let's say you're retired in Mexico, you want to come visit your family. The officer is listening. What would make them go back? What's anchoring them to Mexico that would make them not overstay? And you don't have a job. It's not like you have school to go to. Like if you don't own property or have a bank account, like, so when you go to those interviews to get your tourist visa, you're having to prove. And so it's the ones that get them are usually people who say like, look, I'm in college. I'm just going for the summer. Here's my transcript to show like I have classes to come back to, or here's my letter from my job saying like they're employed here. But like, if you can't, if it seems to the consular office, man, this person's going to go and all their family lives in the States. They're just going to stay. They'll, they'll deny you a visa. And so I've had lots of, I mean, more visas are denied at consular interview than are approved, even for tourist visas. And so the countries, that, there's a number of countries that we're maybe not as fearful of um, that the agreement is they can just come in with a passport and get the visa right here. And you're right, those people can decide, we're not going back, we're going to overstay. And the reality is there are so many people coming and going that like the system isn't really set up. So, cause, so if you've ever visited Canada, for instance, you know, sometimes you'll get a stamp in your passport. Sometimes you won't like it, it all depends on the customs and border patrol. And so, you know, you can fly in, if you fly in through a plane now, like you're almost always going to be documented, but land borders often, there's just so much happening that they might not have, you maybe flew in, but you drove out or you drove in and flew out. And so sometimes it's hard to like get all of the information paired together. So it's not as easy. There's been legislation that has been pushed recently that has said like, we should track this better um, to see if there's a way. Um, but there's so many other kind of broken parts of the system that like, I don't know if that one will ever really kind of be fixed. So all that to say, um, it's not as easy to come as I think most people think, but once you are here, like people could choose, um, you know, to overstay, like even a tourist visa and, uh, and try to figure it out. Although, you know, it's, it's difficult to live as an undocumented person in, in, in our country. Like there's other countries that like around the, the world that, um, it's a little bit easier to move from undocumented to like lawful. Um, cause every country, that's the other thing that I think infuses some people, you hear news from like Europe or from Australia or New Zealand. And it's like, remember every country has their own processes. And so just cause you hear like, oh my goodness, this happened here. It's like, well, you know, our system is different. And so just because it happens somewhere else doesn't mean it necessarily can or should happen here. So one of the things that I think I'm just totally surprised by is that someone, so I, I think I assume that getting a passport must be hard for some people where they just don't have a passport because you have to, you know, there is a bit of a process for that, but I, I didn't realize that you can even have a passport and not, you know, go to Orlando, Florida to see Disney world or something as easily as I've gone to uh, Guatemala or Haiti, or I've, I've been to Spain, um, been to Canada. Like I didn't realize that you would have to go through that 
interview process. And it's only from certain countries that were. Yeah. I mean, it's from the majority of countries. It's, it's difficult to visit the United States because remember your passport is an American passport. So when you come in the country, like when you went to Spain and came back, you went in the American citizens line. But remember there were those other lines mm-hmm. that are usually longer and slower. That's for if you're carrying a passport from other countries. So any immigrant is obviously carrying a passport from another country. And so it's not as easy to travel. You know, they get, you can Google and like there's different countries and there's like strong passports and weak passports. Like the strong ones are ones that you don't need a lot of visas for. You can just travel the world and not need, you know, prior permission. Then there's other passports from other countries that it's like almost any place you want to go, they expect you to have a visa to get there. Um, yeah, that's, and so that's interesting. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I I realize like I have American money coming back to America is simpler, but like, I don't remember it being complicated to go to uh, Spain when I visited my sister-in-law was there for a while as a missionary. Well, this, this is one of the things I'm one of the few people who talks about this, but I think this is one of the reasons why the church um, is a little bit off when it comes to immigration. I think many church people who go on short-term mission trips have thought their whole lives, we've been taught to lie to immigration. I mean, that's the reality. I remember the first time I went to Guatemala, it was like, hey, make sure when you go through the line, just tell them you're here on vacation. Don't tell them we're building anything or don't tell them we're working. You know, like I remember gathering a group when I went to different places. When the same thing, when I was in Africa, I started working as a tourist before I had my residency, which is illegal. But it was like, it's okay. The ends justify the means. This is what we have to do. Mm, and so our mm. assumption is we grow up as kids in youth group doing that, thinking it must be the same. Like you just say what you need to say to get. And it's like, wait a second. Like, you know, th- these are these are laws and we're supposed to follow them. But we, we kind of have learned as Americans, you know, say what you need to say to kind of get through. Well, when the shoe's on the opposite foot, it doesn't work you know, like that. And it's, it's a little bit tough. I mean, I remember even going to Canada where people are like, I was preaching at churches and going to be paid for doing that. But they're like, don't say that. Like, and it was like, I had no problem being like, yep, just visiting some friends, you know, like, and it's like, it, it, it it doesn't, you know, work that way. So sometimes I think we, we lower like what immigration is like when it's really like, you know, it's some, some very stringent laws and processes that you can't just kind of, cut corners or sidestep, even though we have a tendency to do that ourselves. Yeah. And that's, so as you're sharing all this stuff, there's so much, and we're going to get to this in a second, <laughs> but there's so much that frustrates me about the injustice of like, particularly sometimes the ways the Christians, American Christians in particular, stereotypically, I, sorry, I have all these preface remarks stereotypically the way a lot of american christians talk and the way they politically see this issue um especially in light of what you just shared is a little bit like this is gonna sound strong but it's a little bit hypocritical like i mean it's not a little bit like if you've gone on a mission trip and you've lied to go into a country uh, or you go to a church that has sent a short-term missions team that you supported and you've done then you have circumvented another country's laws, while at the same time, that's one of the top reasons I see people uh, being a little bit judgmental of immigrants who come to our country. Well, you know, 
Romans, is it Romans 12 or 13, Romans 13? Is that what they appeal to all the time? You know, obey the law yeah. of the land. Anyways, sorry, I'm going to get, I get a little. No, no, that's, yeah. I get a little passionate about and justice. For, and, yeah, yeah. And for the listeners, it's like, don't feel like, I mean, in some places you were told that and they were just like looking out for you. But in other places, like really, it was like the things we were doing, we probably should have been on another visa. But, you know, we felt like this was the easiest visa. And like, so, you know, it, it is a tough, you know, conversation to be had because, yeah, our perspectives are a little bit skewed. I know mine had been because historically it was always like, this is what you need to do. Just do it. Um, and so that's not always the, the right thing. Yeah. I hope you don't get a ton of emails from missionaries overseas. Yeah. <laughs> Many are doing exactly what they need to do. You know, it's just that uh, any of us that have been in those situations where we said like, I remember in one country, I think like the visa was only for 10 days. And like, I knew we were going to be there for 20. And it was like, well, what were we going to say? And they're like, no, when you go through, just say you're only going to be there for, you know, 10 days. They, they won't check on the way out. And it was like, I mean, I did that just fine. But it was like, no, like, that's not really how it's supposed to work. Or, um, yeah, there's all kinds of great stories about that, you know, as to, to get into other places, what we'll do. But anyways, just a side thing to think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think for me, it doesn't necessarily bother me if missionaries or short-term missions, but I guess I could see where it would bother me, but like, well, I guess what bothered, let me put this right. What bothers me more is if you're inconsistent about it, if you're, yeah, if you're going to see that sometimes there are ends that justify, uh, a, a means or, or that the, the law of man sometimes needs to be trumped by a better purpose then be consistent with that. Uh, or if you're going to say, nope, they have to come here legally, regardless of whatever they might be fleeing from, regardless of whatever uh, other compa- other things could, should be worth my compassion. If you're going to be rigid about that, then be rigid about the other thing too, I guess. Be yeah. consistent is where I guess yeah. I would. Uh, but anyways, that's I digress. So <laughs> what are some of the reasons someone might want to come to our country uh, I guess do there's so many misconceptions. What are some of the reasons someone might come here illegally? Because I think there's sort of this narrative that what I hear you saying is that may not be everyone's intention. Like it may not be their intention to come here or be here, here illegally slash uh, undocumented. Um, but the narrative is sort of that they are, you know, sinning with a high hand that they are intentionally, um, undermining our country's good laws. And, and, and even there's another narrative that they're here for, you know, nefarious reasons. They're here uh, for harmful reasons. So that's sort of the narrative from your perspective, what's the truth? (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've yet to meet an immigrant who like wanted to be undocumented like, I mean, I, I, and I've met thousands uh, yeah. in my time. I think everyone, I think there's, uh, there's a group that um, just like you felt it was easy. And so they thought they would just come and get a job. They didn't realize there was this whole process. And I mean, especially people that came like, I mean, a lot of immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants have lived here before uh, the year 2000. So I think a lot of people that came in the nineties, that was, the border used to be a lot more porous. And so you could come, you'd work, you'd go back home to Mexico or El Salvador. 
you'd work, you know, it was just like, there's good jobs. So you just go. And then all of a sudden, I remember talking to friends who were like watching the news and thinking, oh, those, those people, I can't believe they're doing that. And then like realizing, oh, those people are us. I didn't, re- you know, they like not realizing how serious things were. Uh, and so I think no one wants to be a document. I think people that show up uh, at our Southern border, uh, you know, they're, they're seeking asylum. They're, they're fleeing. I think we need to understand in a way that I think most people don't, um, that there are literally, um, you know, we, we have, like I said, 281 million people who are uh, immigrants, but 90 million of them are forcibly displaced. Mm. So that means like they, they, they have to leave home because of, you know, war, violence, persecution. We have an all time high 27.1 million refugees in the world today. And so when we hear things like, you know, the reality is 1.6 million encounters at our southern border in the past year, 1.6 million. That seems huge. But in the grand scope of what I just shared, 90 million forcefully displaced people, like 26, it's like, you know, yeah, of course, there's a lot of people that are trying to come. I don't think people realize that only a quarter of the um, people uh, at our southern border, uh, it's 30% or so, are from Mexico. Like 70% of the people at our southern border trying to come in without papers, just trying to come here, are coming because they're fleeing. And under law, you're allowed to come without papers if you want to go after asylum. And so we have an all-time high of people who are trying to come to our country saying, because of my social situation. So it's not just like my neighborhood's violence. It's like because of my my race, because of uh, my gender, because of my religion, you know, because of my political affiliation, you have to put yourself in a social group. Because of that, you know, I've either been persecuted or will be persecuted. And, and the reality is, is they're not coming and like trying to sneak. I think that's the issue. It's like, we think like, oh, building tunnels and in the darkness of night. What's happening at our Southern border are people are turning themselves in. That's why there's so many border encounters because the first step in the process is you meet with someone, they do a credible fear interview to see, do you have the foundation to prove that you could be an asylum uh, applicant? And, and literally, like, it used to be as close to 90%, but it's like well over three quarters of the people pass credible fear. And it's like, yes, you have a genuine reason to try to be coming and seeking asylum. Um, the sad thing is when it comes to asylum in our country, uh, there were 155,000 defensive. Um, I hate that this, this is so complex, I know. But basically, defensive asylum means when, when you get to the southern border, or when you're caught and you say, I'm scared of being sent back, you're put in removal proceedings. So we're, we're saying you can defend yourself. And if you can prove asylum, you can stay, but we're trying to send you back. So it, it's the opposite of like innocent until proven guilty, like an immigration with this, it's saying, no, we are putting you in removal proceedings to, to send you back, but you can defend and stay by seeking asylum. So, like I said, 155,000 defensive applications, only 26% were approved. So all of those ones at the border, someone, a trained person interviewed them and said, we think you have a vital fear, but only a quarter of them when they went through the process in the courts 
we're able to, to, to reach the bar of proving it. So that means three quarters of them don't just get like, oh, it's cool. It's like, no, you have an order of deportation. You either get asylum or you get ordered removed. And so the reality is I think people are coming to our country because they're, they're having to leave their places of origin. They're genuinely afraid. A lot of times they don't reach um, the, uh, the, the bar, which is a high bar for asylum. And so they're left in this really, really difficult place. And I think once people realize that, I mean, and the reality is, is people can reach out to me at any time. I'm easy to get a hold of. I love a conversation and a coffee with anyone or meet people via Zoom and ask all their difficult questions. I think the truth is so illuminating when it comes to this. I think most people who are very against things, once they understand the truth of the situation, it's like, I had no idea. Like, I don't know about you, but I thought when people came in the southern border, it was like, and then they were released. That meant they, like, had papers. They were good to go. I had no idea that meant, no, they're in this long court process that's trying to remove them. And for most people, they will be removed at the end of it. Like, that, that isn't shared in the news. You know, what's shared in the news? Oh, my gosh. You know, they were, they're releasing all these. You know, it's like, no, the, the truth is a lot more complex. And it also lets people know like how concerned I think they should be. So, so you're saying the truth is more <laughs> complex than the memes we share on social media. Yeah. So in line, sort of in line with that, are there a couple like, uh, and maybe none come to mind, but are there any sort of prop, what I would call propaganda myths or misconceptions like those, those, the ones that, you can fit into a, a Twitter tweet or a Facebook meme or status post. Like, are there some common rhetoric, rhetoric yeah. surrounding immigration that is just flat out unhelpful or not true or just misrepresenting reality? Yeah, I think, you know, do it the right way uh, or get in line like, like we did, like, under, like not understanding that historically – uh, the largest wave of immigration that most of our grandparents or grandparents came through 1880 through 1920 was radically different. Like everyone was lawfully able to work. People came like as lawful permanent residents, it was easy to become a citizen. There were, there wasn't forms or fees and things like that. And so the reality is, and if, if people don't get anything, well, I want them to get when we hit the scripture things. I think that's really important. I don't really care where you fall on the spectrum. You don't know, following Jesus, but if you're following Jesus, I deeply think this matters and there's only you have a limited space on the spectrum of where to sit. But for everyone, if we could just realize if your grandparents or great grandparents, whoever immigrated the right way and waited in the line, like they were supposed to came now, they would be undocumented. Mm-hmm. And if all the people that you are hateful towards um, and say, come the right way, came when your parents and grandparents came rather your great grandparents, they would be us citizens. Yeah. Like let that digest for a little bit. Mm. Like, so stop doing the memes about like, it's easy come the right way. Yes, it was. We celebrate our immigrant history and we villainize our immigrant presence. Mm, and it's like, good. it's just a different, you know, and it's like, once I realized that I love my grandparents, they were from Poland, Slovakia. You know, I shared earlier, my name was changed at Ellis Island. I celebrate that. And it was hard. They, they changed countries. They had to learn a new language. But they waited in line for three to five hours. They were asked <laughs> 20 questions. 
and they showed up. They didn't even yeah. know where they were going. You know, they, they, they went to the train station or the Slavic language, entered the train and went to young side. I mean, it's like, it's not that way anymore. And so we need to understand it. So that's one that I like studying immigrant history will open your eyes to some pretty glaring things that we can't capture in a meme. Immigrants steal jobs that has been proven to be false time and time again. The reality is, is that in the immigrant workforce is necessary. It actually helps because the economy is an individual job siloed. It's, it's a line, right? And so if immigrants like aren't taking care of, you know, in, in our state, like tomatoes in, in Elwood, then how are the truckers, you know, it's like, it goes up and down the line. So mm-hmm. like, if you remove immigrants, I mean, I remember talking to a guy who was in charge of the dairy farms for a whole state saying, cows need milked. Like, you can't just tell them to stop weight. Like, no, it's like, and if I don't have immigrant hands to milk cows, like, I don't know, like, how we're going to have milk. And it's like, the reality is, is that in most sectors where there's lots of immigrants, and by the way, we often forget immigrants work at both ends of the economic spectrum. Like they work in many unskilled labor positions that most people don't want. They're doing very hard labor, but simultaneously, most immigrants are two times as likely to have a PhD as a native born. You know, the, in some mm-hmm. states, the, the, the most usual immigrant job is not a cook or someone cleaning a hotel room, it's a college professor or an engineer. Like out of all the startup firms in the country, a third of them have an immigrant on their leadership team. Like the reality is, is like, you know, they have a higher range of entrepreneurs and a higher range of investors. So the idea of stealing jobs is a myth. Another one is they don't pay taxes. The reality is in the, in the 1980s, when it finally, it took, it was in the 1980s. Up until then, if you were here, you could work lawfully. In the 1980s, they finally kind of uh, said, you have to have work authorization. Like, you have to prove you have a Social Security number. Right after that went into effect, the IRS created the I-10 number, the Individual Taxpayer Identification Number, because they realized people without socials were going to work, and they wanted to make sure that they could still pay taxes. $16 billion a year goes into Social Security from people who are paying taxes that can never receive social security. That was by the social security actuary. That isn't like some pro-immigrant think tank. That's the social security department themselves saying billions of dollars. Are there people who don't pay taxes? Yes. The vast majority do, and they're never going to get the benefits of paying into social security or Medicare. The final one I think is often shared is the idea that their threats are criminals in every comprehensive study, it's called the immigration paradox, that when immigration increases in a community, crime decreases. You know, there is, uh, when you look at native-born people and foreign-born people, more native-born are in prison, more native-born are convicted. And so the idea that, like, the idea of threats or criminals are out to get us, it's like all of the studies have shown that that just isn't the case, that immigrants coming into your community actually make it, like, less of a place of, of crime. Uh, I mean, because the reality is, let's be honest, most immigrants are fleeing that. Yeah, um, right. And so um, I they're think sometimes wanting to perpetuate think, it. Yeah, yeah, they're the victims of crime, not necessarily the ones perpetuating crime. So I think most of the things we hear, and, and I mean, this is why you do your podcast, right? It's like, the reality is like, let's ask good questions. Yeah. Like, and let's like, like find the answers and realize that truth is truth. You know, and it's like, it it isn't found, like you said, like on a little meme or on a little Twitter thing that sounds like a great statement. It's like, 
there's probably something better. Like let's, let's ask the questions and really figure this out. Um, and I think all of the myths get busted when you build your first relationship with an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, because then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, like you're hearing these things. And you're like, well, that isn't like what I know about Heriberto or Nico or, or like Abigail or like you, you start like, you're like, like I know them and they might not even have documentation, but I know them to be, you know, good and they're paying taxes and they own a home and they're, yep. you know, engaged in the community. And it's like, and so that's what I wish I could never convince people. I mean, I'm grateful to, to be on and talking with you, but like the people listening, it's like, if they're on one side or the other, like they're either saying like, Oh, this is great. Or I don't know about that guy. You know, like um, the reality is it's relationships, it's tables. It's, it's that yeah. that changes us in our views. And so anyways. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with that. All of my, um, all of the ways my paradigms have been challenged related to what I would say are people issues um, have started with a face-to-face conversation um, that challenged my preconceived ideas and, you know, all those other things we could talk about the, the biases and prejudices and all this stuff. Um, Man. So I guess this is, this is a little bit uh, contentious maybe to say, but so, so what I hear you saying is, when a politician says that drugs and murderers are just pouring in at our Southern border, you know, at these alarming rates, rapists, and, and they're just, um, you know, going to create these horrifically dangerous communities. And we're going to look like a third world country. If, if we don't do something that's, that's not true. Like it's just, and, and I'm not necessarily trying to be partisan in, in politics. I'm just saying, like when someone makes that statement, it's not founded on reality. It's, it's founded on some propaganda that appeals to an emotion. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. That I think, and, and, and there will be people listening. I mean, it's like you painting with a wide brush on either side. Isn't necessarily wise. Like are there immigrant criminals? Are there immigrants in prison? Yes. But what we're saying is that the, the idea that the vast majority are this or that, it just isn't correct. The vast majority are victims. The vast majority are fleeing. The vast majority, like, you know, own homes. Like, they, like immigrants are more likely to own a home or more likely, like, you can look at all of, like, the real data. And it just goes against all of the kind of apparent myths where it's like you find one person who fits that narrative and you're like, look, I found them. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> but what about the, the millions of others that uh you know are the the exact the exact opposite and so yeah yeah well one of the things i did a little bit of research i forgot which website it was but i just did a little bit on persecuted christians and i found that um there is a a fair percentage of refugees and a fair percentage that we turn away that are actually our fellow believers who are fleeing persecution and so i think most people don't realize yeah yeah yeah. So some you of the, some of the political, well, I was going to say some of the political positions that we take, um, we don't realize we're inadvertently sort of setting ourselves up against other persecuted Christians. If we take some of those hard line positions against some things, you know, yeah, every year, 27.1 million refugees, like you said, many of them persecuted because of their faith. Many of them have faith in Jesus. 
Every year we have a ceiling. We'll only yep. accept up to this amount. And I understand that you can't accept them all. Yeah. You know, the ceiling used to be around like 80,000, 150,000. Yep. It was dropped to something like Yeah, 15. Yeah. And they yeah. only that year brought in like nine. And so it's like, and Crazy. yet I think what we do is we pat ourselves on the back. And so the other myth that often gets perpetuated by even church folks out here is like, we can't help everyone. And we can like, help more though. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It's like, I, I understand yet, you know, it's like there are countries that are, have nowhere near what we have who are doing far more than we're doing. And yet yeah. we want to focus on like, well, like, it's, oh, good job, you know, pat ourselves in the back for the little bit we're doing, not saying like, and, and then once again, like if you're not a Jesus follower, it's like, I, I understand. But if you are, it's like, we really have to look you know, to, to the rabbi and say like, well, what would Jesus call us to yeah. do in this situation? Like, would he be okay saying like, can't help ever? It's like, and then he tells us the good Samaritan. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, and then he talks about like what it means to like actually, you know, serve the vulnerable and care for the least of these. And then it's like, oh, wait a second. I actually think we as the church are really called to, to do this. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that leads right into yeah. the, the next question of, so what, what unique perspective and I guess from your perspective, <laughs> do does a, a Jesus follower, a Christian, uh, what unique perspective do we bring to the table, or or should maybe should we bring to the table um, if we're if we're rooted yes. in the way of Jesus and Scripture? So this, like, I mean, this is the most important one, right? If you're a person of faith listening, the reality is the Bible from Genesis to Revelation speaks very clearly about immigrants. And I have to be honest, I was blind to it up until, you know, just recently. The reality is, is, you know, God only calls uh, people in the Old Testament to love. He says, love me, you know, love the with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, love the foreigner living among you. And then the question is, well, why? And he says, because I do follow my lead. Like over 30 times in the Old Testament, there's clear instructions to love immigrants. And it's tangible. Uh, immigrants, it was codified in the law. They should be paid a fair wage. You know, if you read the, the passage in Ruth, you all understand about how gleaning worked. But it's like, you don't pick up the leftover crops. You don't harvest the corners. That was for immigrants. But here's so people like, oh, I, I remember hearing about that. Okay, here is like for me, just... The, the mic drop. The quartet of the vulnerable is throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Yeah, that I love God that you're going to share about cares, You know, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. But here's what's crazy. In the ancient Near East, the triad, the poor, the widow, and the orphan, is called to be cared for by any, like, good and moral culture and king. It is uniquely the immigrants that Yahweh says, hey, this is going to be a group that naturally speaking as humans like because of all like we are going to look at immigrants this is an american issue this is all times all places mm-hmm. all yeah, cultures yeah. we will look at the other as as a burden or a threat and yet my people my people will have this radical countercultural ideal that you will also love and care for immigrants i think this is why in the new testament any list of what an elder or church leader you know any list of a pastor there is that word hospitality which in English and in church culture in America, we have dumbed down to mean you're an extrovert who hosts a Super Bowl party. <laughs> Keep doing that. That's wonderful. But literally, that characteristic is phylloxenos, philo, love, xenos, immigrants. 
It isn't loving strangers. Xenos is foreigner. It, it is immigrants. And so the reason why I think church leaders are called to have this radical, it's like the only explanation is Jesus. I can't tell you how many times people come because of what I do. They see my last name. And I think a lot of times we've had it with Africans. We've had it with Latinos. We've had it with all the, they, they see Samora. And so they expect that I don't look like you're not seeing me now, but I am a middle-aged white man. And so they'll be like, where's Pastor Sack? And I'm like, I'm right here. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, I think I know who I am. But it's so confusing because why would someone like me Mm. be known for what I do? And it's like, I can't tell you the times I get to share. This is the radicalness of the gospel at work. This is what God calls us to, not to lower the ball, but to raise it. Only the Holy Spirit working inside you can develop a characteristic where when you see immigrants, it's not threats or burdens. It's like, no, love, welcome, celebrate. And like, I think, I mean, it's just the pages of scripture speak so directly to it. Okay, then the final one, Matthew 25, 35, right? It's the separation of the sheep and the goats, mm-hmm. if you remember. And, and what we yep. have done in, in modern day America is make that about acts of charity. Yeah. So we can listen to the separation <laughs> and say, well, I gave money you know, and I visited this person in jail and I, and I went to the food pantry and gave cans. Okay. So the Greek says that at the end of the age, he's gathering ethnos. That means he's gathering communities. This isn't about individual. Yep. This is about saying as peoples, mm. as systems, how well do we welcome? Yeah. It's like, and I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know if that means your family unit. I don't know if that means your church, your neighborhood, your community, your, your city, the country, but for whatever reason, like the scripture clear, it's like, how are your systems? How well do I as a family, how well do I as a church, are, are we known by saying when immigrants come to our community, this is how we lead. You know, we lead with love and welcome. We're the first people to say, we want you here. We celebrate you. Like we want to get to know you. Um, like, or are we people who, you know, aren't the best you know, at, at welcoming. It's like, what, what does that look like? I think it's pretty profound. And I said it's final, but I actually have one more that's been big for me. In Acts chapter eight, we get our first, like after the resurrection, we get our first encounter of an immigrant and a native born. So it's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. And what I love about that story and I teach all the time is Philip had to be called twice. He was called first to proximity. He shared geographic space with an immigrant. The reality is anyone listening to this podcast, I guarantee in your community, you share geographic proximity to immigrants. But may I remind you that Philip was called a second time to kalao with that immigrants. Kalao is the root word for glue. It's like stick like glue, connect, join together. I have to mm-hmm. use Legos as an illustration. Legos in a box, they could be all different colors, shapes, and sizes, but they're, they're nothing unless they're connected together. And so like the question becomes like, you are in proximity to immigrants. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a person of faith, you are called to be more than proximate. You are called to connect with, to journey with, to welcome, to love, and not just in feelings. I mean, it's tangible expressions of saying, like, how do I do this, you know, in my community? And so, like, I deeply care about this because, like, as a pastor and a person of faith, like, I don't think this is one of those things. I always thought, like, 10, 20, 30 years ago, I thought this was like, who does Jesus root for during the NFL season? It's like, you know, that's not in the body. You know, it's like, that's mm-hmm. choose yourself. Like, and there's a lot of issues like that, that aren't like specifically in the Bible. This isn't one of them. <laughs> God yeah. speaks very clearly to this one. 
Um, and so, and then, you know, the pushback, like you said, you already brought it up as Romans, like respecting governing authorities. May I remind you that there is nothing unlawful about loving and welcoming immigrants, regardless of their status. Mm. The immigrants that, that don't have status, they have to wrestle with that. Like, how, how do I live my life in a way that is honoring to God, knowing, and I know a lot of believers who are undocumented that struggle with this. Like, I want to be right, and I don't know how, and does this mean leaving my family? Like, you know, how do I reconcile this? But, but if you're not in that position, th- there is no confusion. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, we, we are called to love and welcome and care for and not yep. say like, can I see your papers first? It's like, that's not how that works. Yep. Um, and it's not how it works with anyone else, by the way. Like, why is it that in the, in the church today, you know, when the drug dealer comes to faith, we celebrate it mm. and like, we, we can forgive whatever he or she has done. You know, th- there's lots of like people who, you know, like are addicts and it's like, so like case in point in my community, I, I host Narcotics Anonymous meetings in my church and I'm celebrated for it. And they're all convicts and felons. And yet what I do with immigrants is always questioned. And in immigration law, that's the same as getting a parking ticket. You know, it's, it's, it's not criminal law that immigration is in. And so we've elevated this one thing. It's like, how dare you help those people? But yeah. then these people, it's like, of course you should love and care. It's like, may I help you balance and say, like, as a follower <laughs> of Jesus, you know, we, we are called specifically you know, to love and welcome, you know, others and meet them where they are and journey with them. And when that happens, just like you shared earlier, it's powerful. Like the face-to-face connection, the meeting around a table, the sharing food, the journeying together will radically change your life. I'm better. I'm more like Jesus because of the immigrants in my life by far. They have discipled me and been instruments of God's work in my life probably more than anything else. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Man, um, there's just, I get, I am so just with you, trekking with you on the, it's just, I'm, I'm borderline have this like anger inside of me. Like, um, there's all these, especially like the way I put it sometimes is these people issues have been reduced to political issues and, they're much more complicated than that, but also they're people and they're human beings. And the way some of our political talking points talk about them is so counter scripture, so counter the Bible. And it's so troubling to me. And like you, I didn't realize how much scripture talked about it, but if you read through, I mean, the minor, the major minor prophets, it's just uh, concern for the poor, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the stranger among you, like all these words, uh, these, these people, um, just over and over show up And it's not, it's not just new Testament. It's not just Jesus, you know, give a cup of that, that Matthew 25, give a cup of cold water. Um, you clothe them when I was in prison, you visited me. Um, and you know, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me, it's not just Jesus. Like it's, it's a theme, like you said, from Genesis to revelation. And it's like how, um, Sometimes like, how have we missed this? How have we missed it? So uh, to me, sometimes it's so such a glaring um, fault in, in the church right now. Like I, I, that sounds strong, but like it is, and it's not true of, I want to be clear. It's not true of everybody. It's not true of everybody in our churches. Um, uh, Some people just don't know, uh, but, 
but there is a decent amount of of people who've just sort of went along with those talking points we talked about earlier that are sort of the 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 myths or misconceptions and we've we've not really questioned them and uh, and then yeah like you said sometimes like what you just said that your work with the addicts is celebrated but it troubles me that you said sometimes people will question what you're doing with immigrants that right there tells me that there is something wrong you know there's something wrong here there's a uh jared you uh, we talked a little bit about uh pastor we know he talked about this uh snr uh something's not right Mm. when it comes to immigration and the church i feel like there's an snr there's something not right um largely that's really critical i I don't mean to be critical i just everything you're sharing is just so at Immigrant Connection, we have a phrase that immigration is an issue with immigrants are people, and you just yeah. kind of said it yourself. I think that's key for the church to realize often we have opinions on issues with relationships with the people. Like, you know, even with what's happening in our country right now, like the reality is, is that you can have all kinds of opinions and thoughts on issues, but it's like, at least when we see Jesus and his ministry, it was all about connection with people. And it's like, I'm trying to avoid, because I saw what I did with immigration in my past, where I was always, I didn't have any relationship with immigrants, but boy, could I talk. Yeah. They didn't do it the right way, this and that and that. And that's like, I I think as the church, once again, if if you're not following Jesus, like you have a wider spectrum. For us, it's narrower. It's like, before I start spouting off about this or that issue, like, how am I in relationship? How am I proximate? How am I listening and learning from the actual people? Uh, that are in the midst of it. Um, and that's hard because, right, we want to avoid scenarios at all costs. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to bypass them. And and immigrants are one of our scenarios. The poor is one of our scenarios. Mental health is one of our scenarios. You know, we, we have lots of things in the United States, especially, that we want to talk about, but kind of avoid the people because <laughs> they make us, you know, uncomfortable. And it seems to me that those are the exact I think that's why John 4, 1, Jesus had to go to Samaria. No, he didn't. Every good Jew went on the other side of the river and Mm -hmm. went the roundabout way. But for him, it's like, no, like if we're going to talk about Samaria, we're going to talk to Samaritans. And so I have to go where Samaritans are. And I think it's powerful. It's hard, though. Like I I often share um, when I share kind of my personal story. Like I loved serving in Jerusalem, Judea, and I was championed in the far parts, like, you know, to go to the ends of the earth. But Mm. most of us do have a void in our ministry resume of like, you know, what is my Samaria? And I'll tell people often now, my immigrants are not my Samaria. They're very much my Jerusalem. And so God has pushed me, like even starting the Narcotics Anonymous, I was very uncomfortable with. It was like, God, no. And it's like, no matter like whenever you're Samaria, you come comfortable with, it's like, there's another one, believe me. <laughs> and so some people listening that have been nodding the whole time, like, yes, I love immigrants. It's like, I, I would probably challenge you to think like, okay, you know, immigrants are now your Jerusalem, but who are the people in your community that you would say fall into that category? And how do we follow Jesus there? Because um, at least for me, I've learned anytime it's like, I get comfortable. It's like, there's another place he's pushing mm-hmm. me to, to say, yeah, but, but you've turned a blind eye to, to these, my beloved people for, for so long, not, not anymore, Zach, you know, you need to start doing so. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so good, man. We uh, this is such a complicated issue, and we've talked for so long. But I have sorry. Um, no, it's I just. Well, Do you have an editor? Do you edit these? <laughs> uh, well, kind of, but I, I think we'll mostly retain most of this. Um, I do have, maybe you can't answer this. And then I'm going to ask the last sort of lump the last couple together. But um, the, the thing about the 1965, I think you said uh, when, uh-huh. when it changed and it got much more complex with the forms and the costs, like, why did that change? Do you, do you know, like what? Well, it was bad before that too. So before the Heart Seller Act, we were on the national origins formula. So the, there's two big things. So like, you know, the 1920s, we were scared of the diversity that was happening in our country. So we made immigration about you can only come. We based it on the census from 1890. So basically we said 30 years ago, we liked the different ethnicities here. We don't like the ethnicities here now. How do we change it? This is when America, I don't know. I don't think people realize this, but we, we created white whole other podcast for you but the reality is white did not exist immigration created white we decided what we felt were the good you know like italians were not considered white you know it's like um like we did we made the determination so there was the national origins formula that was very based on where you were from in 1965 we decided that doesn't seem right it shouldn't matter where you're from what if what we cared about with immigration is are you are you able to take a good job And do you already have family here? So in 1965, we switched immigration to be about categories based on if you're related to people and what your job might be. And literally, I mean, if you think about it, what else has lasted since 1965? I mean, like we've updated everything because the context changes. We've updated our tax laws innumerable times. But like that is basically, I mean, it is. That's the Immigration and Nationality Act that we basically work for. And, and it was just a change in saying, it shouldn't have to say, oh, I'm from, like, if you're from Africa, there's not a space for you. Or if you're from, you know, China, you're excluded. We wanted to write that. And so how we did it was by saying, like, there has to be some reasoning. And so we made it about families and employment and put those caps on it. And then uh, we kind of left it, left it there. And so that's why I got complex. And then it wasn't actually until um, the eighties in the eighties after Reagan, uh, opened up a pathway for more people to, they call it the amnesty, but it really wasn't. But regardless, he opened up this pathway for a lot more people to get lawful permanent residency. It was at that point that they said, you know, who should pay for all of this? The people who are using it. And I don't think people realize that you don't pay for the post office tax dollars. I mean, like your stamps don't like, but immigration is paid for 96% of their budget is paid for by the form fees collected. And so naturalization in in 1994 used to be $70. Now it's $725. And the previous administration wanted to make it 1,300. So it's like, the reality is, is everyone that complains about immigration, it's like, it's not costing you anything. Immigrants have to keep paying more and more and more money because it's part, it's codified that their fees have to be able to foot the bill. And so that was something more recent than 1965. It was like when they started adding, you know, more forms and, and things like even the, the current citizenship didn't even exist since 2008. Like I think a lot of things with immigration, like I said, that history and presence, we don't realize how new some of the very difficult pieces of our uh, process are. So, 
Yeah, man, it's just, it's crazy. Well, just to wrap this up, I guess, even though I feel like yeah. we could do a whole, a whole other episode, just continuing to talk and tease this out. I think the most important thing was just your, your brief highlights of the scriptural um, sort of, I would, I would say mandates, the scriptural mandates. Um, but so how, let's say someone, the everyday Jesus follower, uh, how, how could they, how could we love our immigrant neighbor um, more fully and, or how could we get involved in a, I mean, you said you're not an advocacy group, but are there other things we could do to say like, okay, this, this system is broken and um, what, what can we do? I guess that's a really broad question, but what, what can the everyday Jesus follower, what can we do? Yeah. So we get that question uh, so much that we created uh, a free devotional we give away. And it's uh, if you go to icwelcome.org and you go to the get involved page, it's right there. You can request uh, hard copies, but it's just right there digitally. And we literally have um, like two pages of like a whole list of practical things, um, like how to welcome your neighbor, like as easy as like, you know, initiating a conversation with newcomers, uh, ask about their home country and culture, you know, organize welcome walks, be a go-to person for immigrants if they need questions, uh, you know, accompany immigrant parents to school events, uh, you know, sharing with them where to get, you know, the good quality food, helping with housing. Like there's a whole, like everything from something very, very simple, as easy as like when someone comes to the neighborhood, give a small gift, like knock and introduce yourself, you know, to as complex as, you know, you know, starting a conversational English program. And we have toolkits to do that for free. So I would encourage people um, not to just push. I mean, there's lots of other great resources out there, but we tried to say, this is a very doable, it's like a five session a devotional that just focuses on what scripture says and then some very practical things. And even for like next steps, it's like we have, everyone learns differently because God created us all different. So if you learn through books, we have a list of books you could read. If you like podcasts, we have podcasts, movies you could watch. I think all the streaming services, like even if you have little kids, um, Disney plus just did a recent, like there's not even words in it, but it's a Pixar short that talks about the immigration journey. Uh, a Korean did it. Um, a, a filmmaker. And so we have all different, like whether you want to, li- there's sermons, there's a list of sermons you could watch or listen to. And so basically that's kind of a great resource. If you go to the website, you can grab it that we try to package everything together to make it easy. We call it the welcome journey. We think everyone has to take their first or next step on the welcome journey. And so even if you're someone who's been doing this for a while, I think you'll find great resources there. But if you're just starting, you'll also find great resources related to how do I get started with this? So I think that leads in, into the other question, how, how uh, you mentioned it, yeah. but go, go ahead and mention it real, yeah. real quick again, the yes. immigrant connection, so, how can we find yeah. out more about it? All that stuff. Yep. So I see welcome.org. I like immigrant C like connection. Welcome.org would be our national organization. What we do is we help uh, churches go through the government process of starting an immigration legal service site. And so uh, we are the largest and fastest growing church-based network in, in the country. And we have been for, for a while now. We have 20 legal offices 
around the country. Uh, we have another eight waiting on government approval, another six churches that are in the process. We basically work with 10 to 12 churches a year around the country to help open legal offices in their churches. What's amazing about this is uh, we invest it's about $30,000 to launch a site. Uh, our, my organization that we founded, we invest 25,000 if the church will invest five. Wow. Because we want to do whatever we can to help churches do this. We also, if, if a church is listening and thinking about it, these are sustainable. So unlike other outreach programs you do, there are low cost fees. We charge about 10% of what an attorney would charge in our offices. If you can't afford that, we give away services for free. We never tell people that they can't be served if they can't afford it. But our services are, you know, a few hundred dollars instead of a few thousand dollars. But because of that, you're generating revenue that actually is able to pay the staff and keep the office running. And so our goal is to not only help you launch a site, it's to help you become a sustainable site so that like most of the churches that do this, I got to be honest, and we're in some like large churches that are, you know, the definition of a mega church, but the first church that did it had less than 25 people in it. It was my church that didn't have a paid pastor. You know, it's like we, we can do this, whatever excuse you might have saying, oh, our church is too small, too small of a community, doesn't have, it's like, Jesus already wiped out your excuses by letting us go first. <laughs> um, yeah. Like it, it, it is possible and it makes a difference. The second website I'll, I'll share with you real quick is IC Legal. Once again, I as an immigrant, C as in connection, legal.org. That one's more if you know immigrants who need our services. I see welcome us to learn about the organization and how we get started, how we help. But if you're like, where is my local office? Like I have an immigrant friend, you know, who lives in Texas, who needs answers. If you go to iclegal.org, all of our local sites, their contact information, how, how to get a hold of them are there. Um, and we'd love to connect with you. And the reality is, is again, if you're listening, we're spread out all over the place. We'd love to be in your community. But if we're not, find your closest immigrant connection site and still reach out to them. You know, a lot of them can do appointments via Zoom or even just answer some basic questions uh, just to make sure that, that people have truthful answers in the midst of, of con a confusing journey. So iclewelcome.org, iclegal.org, uh, feel free to, to reach out and we can answer your questions. And um, Zach, thank you so much. Uh, this has been it's been an enlightening conversation. I think the, I had the foundational compassion, justice, scriptural uh, convictions, but there's so much I learned about the process, the complexity of it. And well, I also knew it was more complex than, than I knew, but I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and this has just been really enlightening for me and I appreciate it so much. Um, well, uh, yeah, Zach, it was good talking to you. Good to meet you via Zoom. And uh, we, uh, we hope that this encouraged you as a listener. Um, I want to I encourage you, especially with this one, um, don't, um, it can be bad at self-promotion, but uh, like and share, even uh, rate and review on uh, Apple Podcasts. And all of those things can help increase our listener base. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next time.